It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Amazon started as an online bookstore, then moved to dominate online retailing and cloud computing. Will it now change the game for digital advertising? It's going to be the largest player in digital advertising in America this year, overtaking the telecoms giants Verizon and AT&T. And we get back to basics. Join me, Captain Sensible, on my economics policy tour of London. We're standing by a pothole and a sign warning of some maintenance to come. And indeed, maintenance spending on infrastructure is the first boring, sensible recommendation that we have in this week's Economist. I'm Rachna Shambhog at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. First to China, where the government is worried about the state of the economy. China's stock market is one of the world's worst performing stock markets this year. And GDP figures released last week revealed a slowing pace of growth. In recent days, though, officials have stepped in to soothe investors. On Monday, the stock market had its best day since March 2016. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor. Hello, Simon. Hi, Rashna. Why has the stock market done so poorly this year? The stock market in China is very immature, so the day-to-day movements, I don't want to put too much emphasis on, on there being kind of a fundamental reason for them. But there are some big concerns about the, the state of the economy, about the uh, the impact the trade war will eventually have on China. Uh, and also, a lot of smaller private companies had pledged their shares as collateral for loans. And so then as the stock market fell, uh, it forced the lenders to sell off their shares, which exacerbated the sell-off. So all these things kind of played together and have led the stock market to fall about 30% this year, which does, in local currency terms, make the Chinese market the worst performer in, in the world. And what have China's officials been doing to push up confidence? Over the last week, we've seen a series of uh, senior officials come out and basically try to talk up the market to say that the economy is actually fundamentally in good shape and the market should be doing better. So four top officials, including the central bank governor, came out uh, in a coordinated fashion uh, last Friday to do so. They've also announced some specific measures to try to deal with the the share collateral issue that I was mentioning. Um, So, for example, telling insurance companies to provide loans to some of the private firms that have been the the hardest hit by this collateral problem. So compared to the kinds of rescues we've seen them stage in the past, this is still relatively mild, but very clearly they're trying to, to intervene to stop the market from sliding. And you mentioned concerns about the slowing economy. Are we already seeing evidence that the trade war is hurting China's economy? 
So one one big caveat first about the slowing economy, people may have seen headlines that China's growth was at its slowest in a decade or nearly a decade in the last quarter. That's true, but you know, it's still growing 6.5% year on year, which is very good for an economy that's as big as China's, a $13 trillion economy. And you know, the indicators are really a mixed bag. Investment has slowed quite a bit, but retail sales are still quite strong. Um, so, so far, in fact, the economy, you know, although it's slowing, it's still holding up fairly well. The real concern is what the picture is going to be like next year. And, and that's a, a twofold concern. One, because clearly the trade wars are going to start to have more of an impact. The American tariffs are going to take a real bite out of Chinese export growth. Uh, and secondly, as growth slows, there's then concern about how the government might respond. Uh, they're still dealing with the overhang of their big stimulus after the global financial crisis in 2008-2009. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's concern that the government might do something like that again, which in the short term might be good, uh, but it would only build up a, you know, a bigger debt problem for, for them to try to clean up. Simon, I know you've been travelling in Southeast Asia recently. How do you think the trade war will affect the region? It's a really interesting question because there's you know, definitely a lot of downsides uh, in that uh, the region is very integrated. A lot of the exports flow through China. Uh, and therefore, if China suffers, you know, the region as a whole will suffer as well. But there's also some upsides because as companies look to move their operations away from China to, to get away from the American tariffs, the best candidates to replace China are other countries in Asia. So you have a lot of countries, especially a little, uh, you know, below China and the value chain that are looking to pick up business from China because of the trade war. Um, so I was in Vietnam and, and manufacturers there are very optimistic that they'll be able to move into some of the space that's, that's being avoided by China. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. Next. Since it launched in 1999, Amazon has gone beyond just retailing into online video, electronic books and cloud computing. Now the e-commerce giant is becoming a big player in digital advertising, which will have consequences for both brands and consumers. Alexandra Switch-Bass is our US tech editor in San Francisco. Alexandra, how is Amazon getting into the world of digital advertising? Amazon's incursion into the digital ad space is really significant because so far it's been a duopoly. Google and Facebook have controlled the digital ad space uh, for several years. Advertisers like to go where consumers spend their time. Uh, And so people are increasingly starting product searches on Amazon. And so advertisers are spending more and more on Amazon as a platform. The way that these ads look different and Amazon's advantage is they have a lot of data about users uh, and their intentions when it comes to purchasing. And they're able to know immediately whether someone's ad works and whether a consumer has bought a product after seeing an ad. So advertisers are becoming really favorable to the product and are increasingly shifting their spend to Amazon. Just to give a sense of it, uh, some analysts are forecasting that in 2018, Amazon's ad business will have $8 billion in sales. And although it's just about 4% of the US market behind Google's 37% and Facebook's 21%, it's going to be the largest player in digital advertising in America this year, overtaking the telecoms giants Verizon and AT&T. And will Amazon's advertising be more effective with consumers than advertisements on Google or Facebook? 
It's very similar to Google's search advertising. Advertisers on Amazon are able to bid on a keyword that people are searching for. So if someone is looking for running shoes, an advertiser can bid on the term running shoes and someone will either see a banner ad at the top of their search or sponsored products uh, throughout their search. And it's really interesting how quickly Amazon has pushed into advertising. It's a very distinct proposition for consumers because consumers are actually looking to purchase something. So they're primed to accept the advertising and find the advertisement beneficial. So I think that they're in a really unique position versus Facebook, for example, when an ad is an interruption uh, and a distraction from what they're there to achieve, which is to distract themselves or be entertained or connect with friends. Alexandra, how will Amazon's rising ad business affect the rest of the company? So analysts are betting that this ad business is going to be a significant new business that's highly profitable. Unlike retail, where Amazon loses money on its traditional e-commerce business, advertising has huge margins. And so by 2021, an analyst at Piper Jaffrey thinks that the profits from Amazon's ad business are going to exceed those from Amazon Web Service, AWS, its cloud computing arm. The reason this is really significant is that Amazon is going to be able to shift the profits from its ad business, much like it's done with AWS, to help it expand into new areas, whether it's new geographies or new business lines. So this ad business is going to give Amazon a huge advantage when it comes to expansion and outpacing competitors. For example, it could choose to subsidize prices or new items or push into new areas. um, And that's an advantage that other competitors do not have. And how does Amazon's entry into digital advertising affect traditional retailers? The main losers are going to be traditional retailers, and in particular, grocery stores. So grocery stores have traditionally sold sponsorship and product placement to advertisers. They'll pay for prominent placement or for promotions like two-for-one deals to get consumers' attention. So that trade spend is going to shift to Amazon. And so one of the most interesting things about Amazon's rise is how this is going to doubly disadvantaged traditional retailers, where traditional retailers are losing out on sales to Amazon, and then they're also going to lose out on promotional spending to Amazon. So they're doubly damned. And as a result of its greater involvement in in, um, online advertising, do you think Amazon will start to attract more regulatory scrutiny? So far, uh, regulators' scrutiny has been focused on Amazon's use of data and how it might disadvantage the third-party merchants who sell different wares on Amazon's site. I think in the near term, that is where attention is going to be focused. But of course, these probes will take on a shape and life of their own. And it's entirely possible that European regulators who are starting an initial investigation into Amazon will start to find other information that leads them to the ad business. I think it will depend on how comfortable consumers are with Amazon's data collection practices and ad targeting. So far, consumers find it useful, and so there's no complaints. But Amazon 
unlike Google and Facebook, does not give controls to users so that they can turn off the amount of data that Amazon is collecting. And Amazon has a huge amount, both in terms of purchase intent, how people are spending their time, uh, location tracking. And then, of course, they have Whole Foods. Um, so increasingly, they'll be able to integrate what people are doing in the physical world and buying at physical stores into their targeting and behavioral advertising campaigns. And so I think it is entirely possible that there will be a consumer backlash that will incentivize regulators to probe um, and look more closely at Amazon's digital ad business. Alexandra, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Finally, on Money Talks, we regularly enthrall you with debates on unconventional monetary policy, the merits of fiscal stimulus and innovative structural reforms. But other areas of economic policy may lack the same sense of excitement. Well, don't fear. Captain Sensible is at the ready. Henry Kerr, our economics editor, donned underpants, tights and cape to explain to us that seemingly boring economic policies can actually do some good. I'm here in the city of London. We're standing by a pothole and a sign warning of some maintenance to come. And indeed, maintenance spending on infrastructure is the first boring, sensible recommendation that we have in this week's Economist. It's not something governments are very good at doing. Politicians prefer a fancy new bridge or flamboyant new project that they can put their name on. But countries typically, as a result, spend too little on maintenance. Maintenance is also something that countries aren't very good at counting. Only Canada has figures. They reckon they spend about 3.3% of GDP. One reason it's difficult to count is that firms do a lot of maintenance themselves in-house. But because of the costs that are imposed on you again and again, if your infrastructure isn't good, if you're driving over potholes that damages your car every time, fixing these sort of things is an easy win for the economy. The potholes haven't prevented me from making it to the second stop on our tour of slightly boring but very sensible economic policies in London. I'm now at Her Majesty's Treasury, and I'm here because in slightly less than a week at Britain's budget, the Treasury is going to unveil its review of assets that the British government owns and how it intends to get more money from these assets. Now, this is something that a lot of people are interested in. The International Monetary Fund has just said that if governments manage to increase the yields on their assets, on what they own, they could raise new revenues equal to 3% of GDP, which is roughly what corporation tax raises on average in rich economies. Now, lots of rich governments are feeling cash-strapped and looking for new ways to raise money as their populations age. The hope is that if they get more from what they own, things like utilities, post offices, financial assets and investments held by public sector pension funds, if they increase the yields on those things, they won't need to raise taxes so much or cut spending so much to bring their budgets into balance. And now we'll move on to the third stop on our sensible policies tour, testing once again the transport infrastructure. So in my Captain Sensible cape, not really, I'm now at the site of South Sea House in the city. Now here the writer Charles Lamb said that he saw the shade of some dead accountant with visionary pen and ear would flit by me, stiff as in life. And indeed accountancy is the third boring, sensible suggestion we at The Economist have. But we're not talking about private sector accounts, the type that businesses would be concerned with. We're talking about the government's accounts, which is what matters to taxpayers. 
Now, governments actually aren't as good at accounting as they could be. They tend to focus on cash flow, money in, money out, and the annual deficit that usually remains. But of course, when the government builds a bridge or some other piece of infrastructure, they gain an asset that if you looked at the balance sheet, as an accountant might, would then show up on the asset side. But because governments don't think about the wealth that they are creating or perhaps destroying, they don't prioritise investment and maintenance of infrastructure in the way that they otherwise would. One of the accountants that Lamb saw here at South Sea House was John Tip, who apparently thought an accountant the greatest character in the world and himself the greatest accountant in it. Well, those are high words of praise. Uh, I'm not sure we'd go that far, but a little more accountancy in the public sector would probably be a good thing. Henry Kerr, otherwise known as Captain Sensible. You've been listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you'd like to get in touch, you can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. If you want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. I'm Rachna Shanbog. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.